Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, October 9th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, a new survey shows parents have some information and some misinformation on charter schools. Then a Gulf Coast woman shares her breast cancer story of survival. Our conversation with Heather Wiggins and her husband, Senator Bryce Wiggins. And in our book club, a renowned artist from Mississippi champions a Mississippi folk artist in his book, Pappy Kitchens and the Saga of Red Eye the Rooster. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. More work is needed to educate Mississippi parents about charter schools. That's according to a survey by the nonprofit Mississippi First. 37% of parents whose children attend charter schools think they're private. 44% of parents with children in traditional public schools also think they're private. But charter schools are funded with taxpayer dollars. Torin Ballard of Mississippi First says even though some people need better information on charter schools, overall the survey is encouraging. He talked with our Desiree Frazier. The main big takeaway from this survey is that parents are overwhelmingly supportive of charter schools in their communities. So overall, these findings really signal a huge vote of confidence in Mississippi charter schools on behalf of an overwhelming majority of public school parents residing in charter school communities. So this includes not just parents of children who are attending charter schools, but parents of children who are attending traditional public schools in districts where charter schools are available. And so we're just finding overwhelming satisfaction on behalf of parents of charter school kids and also just general um, appreciation of the charter school sector on behalf of all public school parents in these communities. Does Mississippi first support uh, charter schools? Yes, Mississippi First is very supportive of creating high-quality charter schools. And looking, it says on the, well, referring to the survey results for the first question, which was on a scale of one to five, with one meaning not at all familiar and five meaning very familiar, how would you rate your familiarity with charter schools? Non-charter parents at 38.2% not familiar at all. And that's true. And so some of the big takeaways of this survey are, is also gave us some really great information for the charter school sector on how better to reach some of these parents that aren't yet fully familiar with aspects of charter schools. Um, and we should say that in these communities, so it was about, it looks like 61% of non-charter parents were familiar with charter schools. So again, that leaves almost 40% that are not. And so there's definitely some work to be done in terms of making sure that charter school parents are, or that just any parents in these communities are more familiar with these charter schools. So is the goal to try and get more parents to send their kids to charter school ultimately? So not necessarily to get more parents to send their kids to charter schools, although that would be, you know, that's good. But 
we're more concerned about making sure that all parents, whether and also citizens too, for that matter, that people understand the charter sector. The charter school sector is growing in Mississippi, and it's important for everybody to understand information about what charter schools are and how they work. You know, so one big thing about charter schools is that they're not held to as many regulations as your traditional public school. And so part of that is because they're not held to those same regulations, we have to make sure that they are held accountable in other ways. And part of this is just by getting people to understand throughout the state exactly what charter schools are and how they are serving children in Mississippi. Torin Ballard of Mississippi First. Joanne Mickens is the executive director of Parents for Public Schools. Her organization doesn't have an official position on charter schools, but on a personal level, she has some concerns. I noticed that the people surveyed uh, tend to have a very high opinion of the school that their child attends. And uh, I think it said that the 80, over 88% of charter school parents would give their child school an A or a B. And it made me wonder uh, how that stacks up against how those schools did or how those students did on the standardized test given by the state each year and whether or not um, that holds up with parent perception. And I, I think that it's not only true of charter schools. I think it's also true of, of any um, public school that parents tend to like and give high marks to the schools that their kids attend. And um, that opinion might not necessarily hold up against um, data. So the perception is that I am um, removing my child from a public school system and putting them in a private school, that are, that it, and those schools are perceived as better. Even though we don't have an official position on charters, our position is that we are for public schools. And when you can pick and choose who's going to attend a school, I think right there you erode its um, position as public. I sincerely believe that by moving away from public schools, and this is a very small percentage that, are, that can, whether they're choosing parochial, whether they're choosing private, or whether they're choosing charter. The fact is, so what are we saying as a community? Are we saying that the, the majority of children don't deserve our attention and support to make sure they are receiving a quality education? I just, I just don't see that moving away from a, from a situation that is not ideal contributes to making it better for the vast majority of kids. Joanne Mickens of Parents for Public Schools. Coming up, a Gulf Coast woman shares her breast cancer story of survival. Our conversation with Heather Wiggins and her husband, Senator Bryce Wiggins. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This is MPB Think Radio. Mississippi is our mission. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. 
More than 245,000 women get breast cancer every year in the U.S., and more than 40,000 women die from the disease. That's according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and healthcare providers are urging all women over the age of 50 to get regular mammograms. But Heather Wiggins of Pascagoula was just 44 when she was diagnosed with stage 2 breast cancer in October 2015. She and her husband, Republican Senator Bryce Wiggins shared their story with MPB's Ezra Wall. Well, I found a lump through self-exam and it was after I had had a normal mammogram. Just a few months later, I started to feel something and that was what prompted me to go to the doctor. Do, do you, did you get the impression that they missed anything or can they just grow that, that quickly? Um, from what our oncologist told us, I think that my cancer just grew that quickly. So what was that like for you, Senator Wiggins, to find out that that some that your wife, someone who who means everything to you, was was facing this kind of diagnosis? I mean, it's something that you never expect. Uh, for us, our kids were in at the time that was 2015. So they were in middle school and your first thought goes to what about them and of course uh when you get cancer you you think the worst and that you know uh we've heather and i've been married for 20 years and you know the worst result is not something that i wanted to think about and so it was terrible (laughs) to say the least mrs wiggins how what about uh, what about you when you're finding out about that? Uh, what 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 went through your mind in terms of uh, in terms of how how to get ahead of it or how to how to you know seek the best treatment or how to how to beat the cancer right away? <laughs> you go through a multitude of emotions. First of all, you know the whole anger and hmm. why me and all those feelings. And then I remember saying the very first day, I just don't want to do all this, but knowing that that didn't make any sense. Of course, I had to do something because we have kids and I want to live, right? So um, we had really good doctors, and I just said, whatever you need me to do, let's just do it. And you mentioned the kids before. Were they, were they, how did they handle it? It was tough. They did well once we initially told them that, and which we told them right away. We didn't, mm. we don't pretty much don't hold anything back from them, and we were very upfront about it. We had really good family support around us. So they were, of course, upset in the beginning, and they didn't know what to expect, just like we didn't really know what to expect. Is there a history of this in your in your family? or I wasn't really expecting it. There is some history, but it's not the direct line that you normally hear about from a mother or a sister. And actually, for all practical purposes, no, there was no history of it. And the, uh, what she was diagnosed with uh, was the cancer that's related to the BRCA gene. And um, the doctor said either, yeah, it's genetic. They found no genetic link. So this was just totally just happened. It was really out of the blue, which is something that people need to understand or that everyone needs to understand is that it can just happen. But that's why having this doing the self-exam and doing it on a regular basis in conjunction with going to your doctors is so important because it can just happen. Well, that's an, another thing that I that I wanted to I mean, I know it's 
it's impolitic to bring up someone's age, but but <laughs> you you were not an old woman when this happened. This you, you I mean you're still, still not. You're still <laughs> right. You're still not. And now and, Ezra, you're getting in there. Come on. No, but really, but really, in in your mid forties, when you get a diagnosis like this, according to the op-ed that your husband wrote, so you can blame him for me knowing right. that. Um, how does that affect your your perspective on how important it is for other women to be aware of their risk factors at a much earlier age than maybe we might have thought years ago. I didn't think for myself that much about the age thing. When I was going through treatments, though, I was surprised at the number of younger women than I was that were sitting in the chemo room with me. Um, That was very surprising. I suppose the moral of the story is uh, if it's a concern to you and if you think it might be, bring it up with your doctor when you're at a visit. And take advantage of um, months like October when they have reduced costs for mammograms. Take advantage of that if that's a concern. I know, you know, we could spend hours talking about health care and health insurance, but if that's holding someone back, I just plead with them to not let that hold them back, that they need to get in there and get their exams done and talk to their doctors. And Ezra, I think on that note, you know, I'm presently chairman of Medicaid in the Senate and vice chairman of public health. So I spend a lot of time looking at numbers and Mm -hmm. seeing statistics of health in Mississippi. And, you know, my uh, job as a policymaker is to improve that. And, you know, this is one of the simplest ways that we can reduce uh, you know, bad health outcomes, I guess you would say. You mentioned your role as a policymaker and as specifically as chairman of Medicaid. So, like, w- what what programs are, are available through this, through either the state or, or other programs that you've become aware of through that role that can help? Uh, because, because access to diagnostic processes is a real challenge for some people. Yeah, and um, I could sit here and give you all the acronyms, but uh, suffice it to say that there are statewide programs and national programs that encourage early detection and early uh, having access to care. A lot of that, but those require uh, consistent and continued funding from your state governments and your federal governments. And so they are there. And that's what I think uh, people both as citizens and as policymakers need to understand is is by putting money up front, we are actually improving the outcomes down the road. And that's what I've said in my role as chairman of Medicaid when we've dealt with Medicaid issues is, look, it may cost a little bit here, but the the results down the road are going to pay for themselves. And that's the same thing here. We need to continue funding uh, the screening programs that we have so that low-income uh, women and uh and in particular, and others can have access because, you know, the cost of health insurance is a significant factor. And and we realize that as two working professionals in Mississippi, we're we're different. We're not the average Mississippian. She had, we had really good insurance. That's not the case for the majority of Mississippians. This, this would be my only question on this subject, but, but does this, change your reflection at all or affect in any way your reflection on potential talks that some Republicans have begun about <laughs> about Medicaid reform or as other people classify Medicaid expansion or those kinds of things? Honey, you want to take that question? Uh, no, Senator. <laughs> I think that's for you. <laughs> uh, no, it hasn't. Uh, it's part of the discussion. I will put it this way. 
the media and even us politicians like to talk about things as if they're black and white. They're not black and white. And behind every person who has breast cancer, I'm sorry, behind every um, policy, there's a person behind behind that. And so uh, we have to be smart and look at it, what I call on a case-by-case basis. So just because... You know, breast cancer is there. Does that mean we expand Medicaid? No, it's more detailed than that. It's more nuanced than that. Um, Is it a reality that the uh, low income uh, have a higher uh, or statistically are higher at not uh, doing early detection and all that? Yes. And what are we going to do to ensure that they uh, get the screenings that they need? Because that can... Uh, lead to better health down the road. And I think that's where, and I'll say it, that's where us Republicans uh, at times have our head in the sand, is that we we refuse to acknowledge the human side of that kind of stuff, and that's where we need to be looking. Mrs. Wiggins, what do you, what do you want people to take away from your experience? I mean, it's, it's not easy for people to share their personal health experiences like this. First of all, to not be afraid to bring it up and talk to your doctor and to have your screenings. There are lots of ways that you can get in there and get it done, and if cost is a concern, um, I think there are various programs you can look into, find out, ask your friends, find ways around it, talk to your local health centers. The other thing to remember for other for other people, I think, is that there are so many forms of cancer out there now, and there are so many um, treatments, different paths in treatment, different chemos that people take and such, and, and everybody's experience is a little bit different. And uh, to be there to support your loved ones if they're going through something like this is really important. It takes it takes a village. <laughs> In this case, it takes support from your family and your loved ones to get through it. And it's very survivable if you catch things early. Well, we've been speaking uh, with uh, Senator Bryce Wiggins and Heather Wiggins uh, and talking about breast cancer awareness today. I appreciate your time today. Thank you very much for sharing your personal stories with us. Thank you, and thank you thank for, you. for uh, bring, raising this issue. Coming up, a renowned artist from Mississippi champions a Mississippi folk artist in his book, Pappy Kitchens and the Saga of Red Eye the Rooster. That's next in the book club. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. O.W. Pappy Kitchens was a Mississippi artist who started painting at the age of 67. He said he was a folk artist. I paint about folks, what folks see and what folks do. Today's book club selection is called Pappy Kitchens and the Saga of Red Eye the Rooster. Its author is no slacker in the art world either. William R. Dunlap, also a Mississippian, is a renowned artist, arts commentator, and writer. His work has been displayed in the Metropolitan Museum of Art and the National Gallery of Art. He tells us that he and Kitchens admired each other. He worked very hard and and, and was, was unschooled, and he had one child, our daughter, Bobby Jean, who I married, glorious woman, you know, they're all three buried in Jackson, Mississippi now. And and when he came, he, he, after he sold his business, he would come to the mountains of North Carolina where I was teaching in, in fall and in the spring. And he, he'd ask me, can I go up in your studio and piddle? I said, oh, you bet. Knock yourself out. And as I say in the book, the only thing I told him not to do was mix the oils and acrylics. And of course, he figured out a way to do that. <laughs> so, 
I'm convinced that I owe him a great debt because I watched him turn that red eye of the rooster into a protagonist for all things human. And I think I do the same thing with the walk around. I, I believe I owe Pepe a far greater debt than he owes me. But you know, he, had, he didn't have his career in Mississippi. I showed his work to people I knew, to Betty Parsons in New York and Janet Fleischer in Philadelphia. And, and his Red Out of the Rooster series was in the Corcoran Biannual in the mid-'70s. And it was also Bill Fagley put it in the New Orleans Museum of Art Biannual. And I was able to help in that way to introduce his work to the people I knew in the art world. And, of course, my ambition knows no limits. But his career was in a lot better shape than mine in the late 1980s. I really admired him and liked him. And this book that the University Press has done is just remarkable. It, it does, you know, what, what you're supposed to do if you're a big game hunter, bring it back alive. The saga of Red Eye the Rooster. Tell us about the whole body of what that is, the saga of Red Eye the Rooster. Well, for what it's worth, the, the whole series is installed at the Mississippi Museum of Art, and it will be there till uh, uh, mid-November. So I would encourage people to come see that. I think it's important to have the works of art on the wall close to where the book is because the book helps understand the works of art. And, and this exhibit has how many panels? He did this work in panels. 60. He did in a series of 20. He did 60 panels. And in all of folk art, and I'm very familiar with the medium and with the people that are involved with it, Howard Finch and those people, no one has sustained a narrative. No one's done anything of this particular scale. So there are 60 panels, and there, he did 20, then he did another 20, then he did another 20, and that's the best way to install them. And the Ogden Museum of Art installed them all together, and it looked good down there, too. They're one piece of art people have wanted to buy. I want to buy this one and that one. I said, no, 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 it's one piece of art. It's a story. It, it's I've kept the work. He died in 1986, and I've husbanded the resources, and, and his daughter and I. We were divorced, but we were never estranged. You know, we stayed in touch, and she appreciated very much what I was doing for Patty's work. And uh, But he made the work. That's the main most thing. He made the work. He tells the story of a rooster, of Red Eye the rooster. He literally tells the story from birth to death. Is it about a rooster, or is it about more than that? Well, it's about a lot more than that. It's uh, (laughs) all the seven deadly sins. And, and, you know, one of the characters that keeps occurring in there is Colonel Harlan Sanders. Now, if, now if, you're, if you're a chicken, there's nothing worse in your future than Harlan Sanders because he buys them and kills them. And, and as Pappy said in one of his, his, his Uncle Ben say, said, I'm not sure I appreciate what Colonel Sanders is doing, buying this chicken in Mississippi, taking it to Kentucky and frying it up and selling it back in Mississippi. So, I mean, it's all the irony of industrialization. But Pappy didn't plan this out. He did this intuitively. And I think that's where the, the real art comes from. It's, it's, it's the critic's job. And the historian's job later to decide what it's all about. But he didn't say, well, I'm going to take these seven deadly sins and illustrate them. He just made paintings that were about the stories he'd been telling me all along. And he was a great storyteller. He was part of that tradition. Our language is, is our birthright. You know, everybody tells stories. When I looked at some of the artwork from this particular exhibit, it reminded me in some ways of Grandma Moses in terms of perspective and color. You have things that are really big, bigger than something else when they should be the same size or one less than the other. Well, that's true. That's true. Well, and the same thing's true with Howard Finch. There's a kind of a folk art, art idiom, you know, in which scale doesn't matter in position. It, it, it's not a renaissance a sense of, of deep space perspective. It's, it's just, it just gets it all in the picture plane. And, and, and Mr. Kitchens was a, was a builder, so his, his draftsmanship's pretty good. You know, he knows how to use a straight edge and knows how to draw because he architected, uh, uh, you know, uh, amateurly at the same time. He'd draw it and he'd build it. And he was introduced to acrylic polymer paints for the first time and found a way to, to work with them. And graphite, he's a 
technically evolved over the decade or so it took to make these paintings. And he's done other work, too, which I've kept, and I'll be showing some of that. But at this point in my life, I want to see him get some attention. I want him to be in, in the folk art uh, pantheon. And uh, I've, I've kept a great deal of the work, and, of course, he showed a lot and sold some. But the, the idea now is to, is to place this Red Out of the Rooster series in an institution that will show it once a year and care for it. The book's been made, but we've got the book. And I, got, I can't say enough about the University Press of Mississippi. Pappy Kitchens and the Saga of Red Eye the Rooster. We've been speaking with the author, William Dunlap. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure, Ms. Brown. I hope everybody gets to see it. And as Mr. Dunlap mentioned, the saga of Red Eye the Rooster is on display at the Mississippi Museum of Art until November 17th. William Dunlap will be signing his book at Lemuria Books in Jackson on Monday, October 21st at 5 p.m. Join us again tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition, only on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.